Hello, and welcome to the summer 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, although it happened just a little too late to make it into the summer 2015 edition of Law Notes, we would be remiss not to start off this podcast with discussion of the big EEOC ruling from last week, finding that sexual orientation discrimination is necessarily sex discrimination covered by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Can you tell us about it, Art? Okay, well, this uh, this sort of came out of the blue on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was sort of expected that the EEOC was going to take the next step. And uh, we should give a little background for those listeners who aren't well-versed in employment discrimination law. Uh, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, was established by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which went into effect at the beginning of July 1965. So we're actually celebrating an anniversary this month. Mm-hmm. 50 years. Uh, so uh, at the time that Title VII, which is the employment title of the Civil Rights Act, was introduced in the House of Representatives, it prohibited discrimination based on race or color, religion, or national origin. Uh, there had been some consideration during the committee deliberations about including sex, but Congress had passed the Equal Pay Act just the previous year, which prohibited discrimination in compensation between men and women who were doing the same work. Uh, and they felt that, that that was enough for now. And in fact, in the mid-1960s, if you cast your historical hat back, uh, the idea of equal rights for women in the workplace was a new and radical concept. And Congress, at least the committee, didn't think it w- they were ready when they sent the bill uh, to the House. Uh, so on the floor of the House, the chair of the committee, a congressman from Virginia named Howard Smith, who was very much opposed to banning race discrimination. However, he had a, a, a past record of being opposed to sex discrimination and, in fact, of being a champion of the Equal Pay Act. Uh, Smith ish, uh, proposed an amendment on the floor of the House to add sex to the list of prohibited grounds for discrimination. And the word went out through the Capitol that there was going to be a vote on a floor amendment. All the liberals who were in favor of banning sex discrimination piled in to support the amendment. And some members of Congress who were opposed to the Civil Rights Act voted for the amendment, presumably because they thought adding sex would make the bill much more controversial and less likely to pass in the end. So a sort of odd coalition formed on the floor of the House to pass this amendment. Subsequently, the bill did pass. And it was referred to the Senate. Uh, There was great concern among the Senate leadership that the conservative southern chair of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Eastland, would bottle this bill up and it would never get out to the floor. So they agreed to send the bill directly to the floor and bypass the committee process, as a result of which uh, the committee process in the House didn't generate any discussion of what adding sex to Title VII would mean, how sex would be interpreted, Uh, as part of the committee reports. And the floor debate was sort of cursory. It didn't go into much detail. We went to the Senate. It didn't go to a committee. So we don't have a committee report from the Senate. All we have is the floor debate. 
there were some amendments that were allowed during the floor debate, but not many. There was a long filibuster before the bill was finally passed. Uh, there was one amendment dealing with the sex, uh, the addition of sex, and that was to reconcile Title VII with the Equal Pay Act and to say that uh, pay practices that were authorized under the Equal Pay Act would not be found to violate Title VII. Uh, and that, in fact, that amendment was complicated enough in terms of interpreting it that it took a Supreme Court decision to uh, clarify actually what that meant. So what we got was we got a statute passed in 1964 that went into effect in 1965 at a time when discrimination based on sexual orientation was not prohibited anywhere in the world and where one wouldn't expect that members of Congress voting to include sex in Title VII would think that they'd outlawed sexual orientation discrimination or discrimination based on gender identity, which was an even newer uh, unknown concept in the mid-1960s generally. Uh, so subsequently, when gay or transgender people tried to file claims under Title VII, they ran into negative attitudes from the EEOC itself and also from the courts, which were pretty solidly opposed to the idea of interpreting Title VII that way. The first crack in the, in the wall, as it were, was a decision by the Supreme Court in 1989, Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins, involving a woman who was a candidate for partnership at this big national accounting firm. And many of the partners at the firm who opposed her said that she was inadequately ladylike, inadequately feminine in her approach, that uh, she uh, didn't wear makeup, she didn't wear jewelry, she didn't really style her hair, she swore like a sergeant. <laughs> You know, she she was very masculine in I their saw view. The New York Times in their article about the they had a picture of her the, yes. for the first time I saw her because we talked yeah. about her. And so she didn't much. look so masculine. No, to I me. know. I mean, that's <laughs> maybe standards yeah. of femininity and masculinity have evolved and over the, 80s, over the course, decades. Right. But it, in any event, uh, she was turned down for partnership. Uh, the federal district court ultimately concluded that that violated her rights under Title VII, and the Supreme Court agreed in a plurality opinion by Justice Brennan. Uh, he interchangeably used the term sex and gender in describing what kind of discrimination was prohibited by Title VII, and he specifically accepted the argument uh, on behalf of Ms. Mrs. Hopkins that uh, sex stereotypes were evidence of prohibited anti-women motivation in this case. Uh, that if an employer discriminates against somebody because they fail to conform to stereotypes the employer has about how men or women should act or present themselves, uh, that is a form of sex discrimination. Once the Supreme Court made that ruling, it opened up Title VII to arguments that could be useful to transgender people and gay people in bringing discrimination claims. Uh, for transgender people, uh, it, it took a while to get underway, but by uh, the middle of the last decade, by 2004, 5, 6, we were starting to get significant federal court decisions accepting the view that uh, when people are transitioning, and this is usually when it comes up, either when, when people present themselves to be hard or when they're transitioning on the job, if an employer discriminates against them, uh, it is likely because they are not conforming to gender stereotypes. Uh, there, there's a man who's insisting that she is a woman, 
and wants to groom and dress as a woman or a woman, uh, vice versa, uh, saying that, uh, that he identifies as a man and wishes to dress and groom and be addressed by masculine name, etc., etc., that fails to conform to the employer's gender stereotypes, we have a theory for Title VII coverage. And a few years ago, the EEOC itself, in a decision, specifically accepted the theory and said that in all cases where someone encounters discrimination because of their gender identity, that would be considered sex discrimination as far as the EEOC was concerned. Now, the federal courts haven't gone quite that far as saying in all cases, but it is rare now to find a federal court claiming that a sex discrimination claim under Title VII by a transgender person is not covered under the statute. I mean, there may be complications about the facts of the individual case and the reason why the person encountered uh, an adverse employment decision. But it's been harder to establish the idea that sexual orientation discrimination claims are always, uh, by definition, sex discrimination claims. It's been harder to persuade the courts on that Although in the past two or three years, more and more federal district courts have adopted a very broad view of the stereotyping theory, the gender nonconformity theory. Uh, For example, accepting an argument that the employer discriminated against the gay employee because their stereotype of a man is someone who dates women, not someone who dates men. Well, that sounds like it's we're just about there. And the EEOC, in fact, has had several cases of that type where someone who was gay who encountered discrimination said, well, I didn't act or behave in a way that they expect manly men to act. Uh, There was a recent case, which I I believe we discussed a few months ago in our podcast involving a pilot who just didn't join in with the macho joking, the the, the gay jokes and uh, the boasting about sexual exploits that other pilots engaged in. And the court was convinced that that was a failure to accord with gender stereotypes for male pilots, and therefore uh, he could bring a discrimination claim under Title VII. And this, of course, leads to some odd results. So if you're a masculine gay man, you know, whatever that might mean, you're not covered. But if you're considered more effeminate... If if you're relying only on the gender stereotype. Or a masculine straight man, I guess. Right. But the the EEOC takes the next step here. And they say, look, as we see it, Sex and sexual orientation are all tied up in one bundle, that uh, discriminating based on sexual orientation necessarily involves the sex of the person. Uh, And uh, they say, of course, in in cases where you meet the stereotyping theory, it's easy. But even in cases where you don't meet the stereotyping theory, where you have a lesbian, gay, or bisexual plaintiff who actually accords to all the stereotypes about appearance, uh, about how people act, uh, in terms of, of their speech and their gesturing or whether they, they meet stereotypes in terms of their vocal inflections. Uh, we've seen some articles lately about talking gay and whether people can be pegged as gay by the way they talk or the way they gesture. I think it, that has more to do with regional uh, issues of accents and, and how people express themselves. But at any rate, in this case, the EEOC takes the next step and says, uh, henceforth, from this case forward, and this case involved a uh, a flight controller, an air traffic control specialist for the Department of Transportation, uh, who claimed he didn't get a permanent position that he was being considered for because he's gay and his supervisor was anti-gay, as evidenced by certain comments he made. Uh, the EEOC is now taking the position that any time 
someone plausibly alleges that they were discriminated against because of their sexual orientation, we will treat it as a sex discrimination case. Now, at this point, it's just the EEOC, and the question is whether the courts will go along with this. Uh, furthermore, this was uh, an EEOC decision involving a federal employee, which is under a different section of Title VII than the section that applies to the private sector or state or local government employees. However, the uh, EEOC and the courts have agreed in the past that the same rules apply in interpreting the sex discrimination and other discrimination provisions, whether you're talking about federal employees, state and local employees, or private uh, sector employees. Uh, now, the EEOC, when it issues decisions interpreting Title VII, is given a certain degree of deference by the courts as the expert agency that was established under the statute and is its primary interpreter and uh, at least initial enforcer. However, judicial deference to the EEOC is at its height when the EEOC is construing a newly passed provision of Title VII that hasn't yet been interpreted by the courts. Uh, it's, I would say it's at its lowest point when we're talking about a provision that's been there for 50 years, uh, a provision that has been interpreted many times by the agency itself not to cover sexual orientation claims, has been interpreted many times by the courts not to cover sexual orientation claims, I would say that deference will not be high in that case, that courts are likely to say, well, this is, is an attempt by the EEOC to accomplish through interpretation what advocates for gay rights have been unable to accomplish through legislation. Because since the early 1970s, when Bella Abzug and Ed Koch were sponsoring a gay rights bill in Congress, there have been attempts to try to get a federal statutory ban on employment discrimination, on sexual orientation, more recently expanded in the most recent uh, version of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which actually passed the Senate, uh, to include gender identity as well. The fact that these things haven't ultimately been enacted is seen by some courts as indicative of a congressional intent not to cover these categories. Uh, so it's uncertain. I mean, it's, it's a big deal for the EEOC to come out and do this, although it was a three-to-two vote along party lines. Uh, the EEOC is a five-member commission, and the statute says no more than three members of the commission may be members of the same political party. So that always guarantees that uh, on any kind of controversial issue, they're not going to be unanimous. So people will look at this and say it's a three-to-two party line vote. It's a political decision. It's not really statutory interpretation. But there is a long line of scholarship supporting this position, including law review articles going back 20, 30 years suggesting that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. So this isn't something that the EEOC just thought up out of their head in the past year or two. This is uh, a theory that's been out there for a long time, a theory that has been embraced at least in part by some courts. Uh, we had a concurring opinion in the Ninth Circuit in their marriage case uh, suggesting a sex discrimination a theory. The Hawaii Supreme Court back in 93 in a marriage uh, equality case embraced a sex discrimination theory. Uh, so there's a backing for this. Uh, how it will fare in the federal courts is an open question at this point. I think we've seen a lot of district courts want to find that uh, sexual orientation claims can be covered, and they've adopted these very broad views in some recent opinions. 
on what constitutes gender stereotyping in order to find coverage. So we may find uh, some receptivity in the courts. Ultimately, the best way to cover this is to amend the statute so that we have text there because when you get up to the level of the Supreme Court, and that's the ultimate test of any uh, statutory interpretation by an agency, what does the Supreme Court think of it? There will be very little deference. It will be a, a question of whether a majority of the court is persuaded that this is a legitimate interpretation of a statute that has been construed to the contrary for decades. So uh, I would put a big question mark on recep reception by the Supreme Court. That's given the current membership of the court. Right. And, of course, it could take years for the issue to get up there. Uh, so we don't know who will be on the court in five years from now or four years from now. And we've also seen a little bit of this theory in uh, other contexts. I wrote about the FHA, the Federal Housing right. Act this month, uh, finding that this Price Waterhouse theory would apply uh, to the Federal Housing Act for sex discrimination uh, in that context. But the, the court was very clear yeah. uh, because they were reviewing uh, a, an interpretive bulletin or regulation put out by the uh, Housing and Urban Development Department. Yeah. They said they were very careful to use the sex stereotyping theory and not to adopt a broad concept that any gay claimant automatically gets and covered. And that was why the, the plaintiff in that case lost, because he was a yeah, He was straight. straight. <laughs> and, and so he was... And a masculine he, straight guy. He, he was alleging that he was discriminated against because he conformed to gender yeah. stereotypes. And the court said, well, that's not the gender stereotyping yeah. theory. Uh, we also had a case uh, out of a federal district court in uh, Pennsylvania recently involving the University of Pittsburgh where we had a transgender student who was uh, pushing a claim under Title IX, the federal statute forbidding sex discrimination by educational institutions. And uh, the court just wasn't buying the idea that uh, a transgender person with a gender stereotyping theory could find coverage under Title IX. Uh, there are other cases going the other way, saying that Title IX could cover sexual orientation and gender identity claims. There are lots of federal statutes banning sex discrimination in different contexts. And so we'll have to wait and see uh, how the different agencies uh, fall in line. The EEOC is one of many federal agencies that issue guidelines, regulations, and administrative decisions. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's a big step for the EEOC itself yeah. to take this position. Um, and we should also mention, of course, uh, one of the commissioners is Kai Feldblum, who's sort of an expert on federal anti-discrimination statutes and an out lesbian. And, um, so this is one of those sort of elections matter maybe kind of moments. I don't know if we would have gotten this without Kai. Well, she uh, she has been very active in pushing the commission to take a broader view of the sex discrimination yep. provisions uh, under the theory that the statute itself sort of sets a floor. And then as the agency responds to the cases that come to it, it should adopt interpretations that advance the overall purpose of the statute, which is to protect people from being discriminated against categorically based on who they are rather than evaluated based on what they can do and what they will do as employees. Yep. So that's the overall policy of the statute to eliminate discrimination. Of course, on the other side, Congress identified the kinds of discrimination they wanted to outlaw, and they haven't specifically listed sexual orientation or gender identity. So... We're engaged in a big debate over definitions, just yeah. as we were in the marriage cases, debating over definitions. Yeah. Remember the dissenters in the marriage cases said, well, these people aren't asking for marriage. Marriage is 
a word that has a long usage of millennia as being the union of a man and a woman, they're asking us to change the definition. And uh, the plaintiffs, of course, are saying, we don't want you to change the definition. We just want you to broaden who can be part of it. And we're not asking you to change marriage at all except for one tiny facet. All right. We will take a short break, and when we return, we will change gears and discuss uh, the decision Art was just referencing, the Obergefell decision, and discuss how implementation of it has been going. We're back. Uh, As you might remember, we did a special podcast last month sort of going into detail on the Obergefell marriage ruling handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court on June 26. Can you bring us up to speed, Art, on where we are with implementation? Okay. Uh, And, of course, we we made our podcast just days after the decision when uh, the decision had officially not gone into effect because – The way the Supreme Court works is when the court issues a decision, there's a 25-day period during which the losing parties can petition for rehearing. And then at the end of the 25-day period, if there has been a petition for rehearing, the court will make a decision on whether to rehear the case. And if they decide to rehear the case, they will never send a mandate back to the lower court. Uh, They'll rehear the case. Uh, But if uh, no petition is filed or if they quickly dispose of it and decide not to rehear the case, then they would notify the lower court from which the case came uh, of the result, and they're supposed to comply with it. Uh, In this case, that would be reversing the Sixth Circuit, vacating its decision, reversing it, and sending the case back to the district courts in the four states of the Sixth Circuit with orders to implement the decision. Uh, But... This didn't unwind that way. It's, it's sort of odd. The one person who really, really, really was insisting that everyone should wait for the 25 days before doing anything was Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana. Uh, and uh, listeners may recall that a federal district court in Louisiana was one of the few in the country, Judge Feldman was one of the few in the country to reject the marriage equality case. And so an appeal was pending before the Fifth Circuit by the plaintiffs in the Louisiana case. So uh, Governor Jindal said, well, just a minute. Uh, First of all, the Supreme Court hasn't yet sent its notice down to the Sixth Circuit. Uh, And furthermore, the Fifth Circuit hasn't ruled on the appeal. And furthermore, there is no federal district court order that's being stayed in this case because the district court dismissed the case. So he said he he saw no reason for Louisiana to rush into same-sex marriage in this situation. And the way it worked out there was that the Fifth Circuit issued a ruling on July 1st. They reversed the decision by the trial judge in Louisiana, and they sent back uh, the case with orders to issue uh, a new decision inconsistent with the opinion. And so the federal district judge issued a new decision a few days later. And by then, clerks in many of the uh, parishes, as they call them in Louisiana, were issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. There was actually a relatively smooth rollout, although uh, Governor Jindal did issue an executive order actually before this opinion even came out, which is being contested in court by the ACLU, purporting to allow clerks uh, to refuse to issue marriage licenses if they have religious objections. And we're seeing this come up around the country, the issue of whether a clerk can refuse to uh, issue a marriage license because they have religious objections, whether a judge can refuse to perform a wedding 
a magistrate, a probate judge in different states. It's different officials that have the uh, the uh, authority to perform marriages, and even who issues licenses in in uh, Alabama, as we've seen. It's probate judges that issue licenses. In New York, it's county clerks. You, know, you go around the country and it differs. But the question is the same. When someone is a public official and they are charged with a ministerial function, that is, they're supposed to apply a law and they don't have discretion, they basically, when it, when it comes to issuing a marriage license, uh, the role of the clerk is to determine that the person submitting the application is qualified within the requirements of the statute. Uh, all right, so the Supreme Court has now said that requiring them to be uh, a couple of uh, different sex in order to get a marriage license is no longer constitutional. So they can't enforce that anymore. They can enforce the rest. They can require that they be of appropriate age, that they not already be married to somebody else, that they not be related with a certain number of degrees because of the incest laws. There are various things that the clerk has to check on to make sure the application is proper, but they don't have authority to say, well, you know, I just don't think it's a good idea to allow Catholics and Protestants to get married to you, so I'm not going to issue you a marriage license. Or, or I don't think it's a good idea to allow Asian Americans to marry African Americans, so I'm not going to issue a marriage license. They don't have that discretion. And so the fact that they have a religious objection should be irrelevant. Uh, certainly under existing law, it should be irrelevant. Uh, the question is whether attempts by states to authorize people to refuse to issue marriage licenses based on their religious objections is constitutional. And we're probably going to get a test on this pretty quickly because there are a few clerks around the country who are objecting, who are refusing. Uh, there was one county in, I think it was Kentucky, where all, the entire staff of the county clerk's office quit. That the consisted of three is, people. I, I read also that there were no same-sex couples that even tried to get a license. Right. No one had so applied. They just, they just quit. quit. They quit in anticipation. But, but more seriously, we have a statute that was enacted in North Carolina over the veto of the governor. And the governor of North Carolina is not a supporter of same-sex marriage. But uh, the veto was overridden by the legislature. Uh, authorizing local magistrates, who are the people who administer the marriage uh, process in North Carolina, authorizing them to refuse to deal with same-sex couples if they have religious objections. Uh, now, the, uh, the statute places a certain condition on it. They say, if you're not going to do same-sex, you can't do any, because we're not authorizing discrimination by individual clerks. We're saying to the individual clerk, if you feel you cannot, because of your religious convictions, uh, deal with same-sex couples uh, respecting marriage, then you've got to file a paper with the state indicating that you're not going to perform such marriages for this reason and that you will not perform any marriages. And, you, and that will suspend you from performing any marriages for six months. And then you can renew it. Every six months, you have to make clear whether you're going to continue to refuse. So it's sort of strange. Uh, and But there's, there's some question in my mind whether a statute authorizing public officials to decline to perform part of their job based on their personal religious views would be violating the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Uh, and certainly clerks who are claiming a free exercise First Amendment right, uh, I don't think they have a very uh, particularly strong argument uh, because the Supreme Court has said that the First Amendment does not excuse a citizen 
from complying with a generally applicable law. Uh, that is a law that doesn't single out their religion in particular. Uh, and furthermore, when a public official is performing their official duties, they're not acting as a private citizen. They're acting as a, an arm of the government. And the government, of course, is bound by the Supreme Court's decision not to deny marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Uh, in, in one state, uh, an opinion was given by the Judicial Ethics Commission, which had been asked the question, can a judge decline to perform same-sex marriages while continuing to perform different-sex marriages? And the answer of the Judicial Conduct Commission was no. He said, under the Supreme Court's ruling, that would violate equal protection. Uh, and and they, they went even a further step because the judge who evidently had posed this question had asked it, what if I only perform marriages for close family and friends? I don't generally do marriages for people I don't know. And their response was, well, you're not obliged to do marriages for anybody. I mean, it's, it's optional to a judge whether they're going to perform marriages or not. They're authorized to if they want to. They said, if you perform marriages for family and close friends, it would violate your judicial ethics to refuse to do a same-sex marriage for family or close friends because it would be discriminatory. But just refusing to do marriages for people who don't know isn't discriminatory on any basis outlawed by the law or the Constitution. So that's okay. So, you know, we've, we've had these things developing. Uh, there was another development that was sort of interesting in Louisiana where uh, there was a, a, an appeal pending before the Louisiana Supreme Court on the question whether a same-sex couple who are married in California are entitled uh, for the co-parent to adopt the child born to the other uh, parent through donor insemination. And the lower court said, no, no, you can't do this because in Louisiana we only allow couples who are married, whose marriage we recognize, to both be the parents of one child at the same time. Uh, so that had gone up to the Louisiana Supreme Court. And after the Obergefell decision, they dismissed the appeal. So the appeal's moot because now Louisiana is going to have to recognize these marriages. And therefore, since they're a recognized marriage, they're entitled to all the rights and benefits of a recognized marriage, which includes being able to adopt the kid. Uh, but there was a dissenting opinion by one judge uh, who said he didn't consider the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell to be legitimate. He took to heart the dissenting opinions which said that it wasn't legitimate, that it was judicial legislation, that it was uh, beyond the court's power to change something as uh, rooted in millennia of history <laughs> as uh, different sex marriage. And uh, he also insinuated that... Uh, in, in this particular situation, not necessarily the facts of this case, but the, the general idea of a married same-sex couple being able to adopt a child, he said, this very troubling aspect of a same-sex couple adopting a child of the same sex, uh, which left a rather nasty insinuation. And one of the other judges who concurred in the, in the judgment, in fact, I think every judge on the court wrote a separate opinion, uh, all of the concurrences made clear we're only doing this because the Supreme Court said we have to do this or, right. or because, you know, we're bound by the rule of law. It's not that we like it. We're holding our nose and we're doing this. Uh, but one of the judges specifically responded. He said, well, didn't he look at the facts of this case? This is a lesbian couple and a little boy. <laughs> you know, and besides, he, he cited no authority to support uh, his insinuation that there's anything sort of sinister about this.
And of course, these are the states the Supreme Court dissenters wanted democracy to play out. And, uh, yeah. It's very clear how little chance we had for democracy to play out in, in our way right. in those states. Well, you know, in, in terms of, of the overall implementation, uh, by the 30th of June, just four days later, the, the New York Times reported that at least some same-sex couples had gotten married in every state. Yeah. By then, every state that had been holding out and and that wasn't part of the 36 states that already had marriage equality, uh, but most of the uh, most of the press attention uh, has focused on the exceptions, the places uh, where there were difficulties. One of those places is Texas, where the attorney general of the state, a few days after the Supreme Court issued its opinion, uh, put out an attorney general's opinion stating that clerks who had religious objections were obviously free not to uh, issue marriage licenses. And a few clerks have been holding out, and there's actually some lawsuits on file. Uh, There are a few other states where individual clerks are holding out, and there are a few other places where lawsuits are on file against the clerks, questions whether they might be individually liable. Uh, But generally, the rollout has been pretty smooth, and a state that could be held up as a bit of an ideal, and I discussed this in uh, in the summer issue of Law Notes based on reporting in the local newspaper there in Georgia. Uh, it seems that after the Supreme Court issued its announcement last January that they were going to review the Sixth Circuit's decision uh, and decide on marriage equality, uh, there was a lot of speculation in the press immediately that the court was likely to reverse the Sixth Circuit. And some people in Georgia decided, you know, we're going to have marriage equality here. By the end of the Supreme Court term, we're going to have to allow it. We might as well get ready. So a bunch of judges on behalf of the Probate Judges Association uh, and a bunch of clerks on behalf of the county clerks, they all got together. They had a big meeting in February. They decided uh, we're going to set up uh, an understanding with the state attorney general's office that as soon as the Supreme Court's opinion comes out, they're going to quickly analyze it, and they're going to send out a memo to all the county clerks and all the judges about uh, how to proceed uh, in anticipation of the possibility that same-sex marriage will be declared uh, required under the Constitution. We will prepare appropriate forms and make sure to send them out to everybody as soon as possible. Uh, And so they did that. Uh, They were prepared. They had the forms prepared. Uh, Within hours after the court's opinion came out, the attorney general sent a memo out. Uh, The Probate Judges Association quickly followed up on any news that some clerk was resisting or some local judge was resisting. They got in touch with them. Uh, The governor actually issued a statement praising uh, the way the state had quickly complied without any problems and pointedly noting the uh, confusion prevailing in the neighboring state of Alabama, where the Chief Justice Roy Moore has been an an ardent opponent of marriage equality and where the state Supreme Court uh, tried to muddy the waters uh, right after the U.S. Supreme Court decision came out by sending a notice out to the parties in an existing case asking them to reply how the uh, decision might affect Alabama as if it didn't immediately affect Alabama. And, and of course, the uh, federal district judges in Alabama who had been entertaining marriage equality, marriage recognition cases, very quickly issued orders, lifted stays, and said the opinion is in effect. And so couples were marrying in Alabama. But there were reports that there were a few counties where people couldn't get licenses yet. So there are little you know pockets of resistance around yeah. the country. Whether this will turn into something bigger, uh, 
one of the things that has developed is that uh, the attorney generals from 15 states have petitioned Congress to pass a statute protecting religious liberty in this context, uh, authorizing clerks and judges not to do same-sex marriages. Uh, They want some kind of guarantee that religious institutions and religiously affiliated institutions will not lose their tax-exempt status if they are opposed to same-sex marriage. Uh, A hypothetical that was put to Solicitor General Verrilli during the oral argument by Justice Alito, uh, he he raised the Bob Jones case. Uh, Bob Jones University adopted a ban on interracial dating by students, and the IRS yanked their tax-exempt status, saying that they had a policy that violated public policy, and therefore they were not a uh, purely charitable organization entitled to tax exempt status. So they, the question was raised with really, well, what if a university refuses to allow a married same-sex couple to live in married student housing because they uh, disapprove on religious grounds of their marriage? Would they lose their tax exempt status? And really said, well, you know, it's, it could be an issue. We'll have to look at it. <laughs> You know that uh, he couldn't, wouldn't commit himself that they wouldn't, and so uh, now there is a mild level of panic among religious affiliated colleges and among other religious institutions that they might endanger their tax exempt status uh, if they uh, refuse to go along with same sex marriage. So there is some pressure building up on Congress to legislate on this, uh, to instruct the IRS. Uh, I think the likelihood that the IRS would yank someone's taxes them status on this basis is slim, but who knows? Uh, interestingly, I know I saw that at the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference, Justice Kennedy was asked about sort of reaction to his opinion, and he likened it to the famous Texas flag-burning case uh, right. from the late 80s and said, you know, there was a lot of strong reaction to that decision, but it eventually people came to accept right. it as being correct. Well, I think the, the Loving versus Virginia in 1967, the interracial marriage decision, at first was very controversial. Uh, At the time that decision was issued, a clear majority of the public said in public opinion polls that they were opposed to interracial marriages. And there were some clerks around the country that were refusing to give out marriage licenses, uh, claiming that they had religious objections. And uh, any clerk who raised that quickly discovered that the courts didn't agree, (laughs) that in fact religious objections of individual clerks don't count when they're public employees performing a public function. Uh, So uh, it it looks like this is rolling out without too much angst. Whether it will remain an issue in the presidential election, uh, a few of the uh, Republican presidential candidates have suggested that we need a constitutional amendment to define marriage. Uh, That strikes me as so unlikely that it's not worth serious consideration because even though public support for same-sex marriage took a slight downward tick in public opinion polls over the past week or two, it's still above 50 percent. And I think that uh, over time we'll see the the Massachusetts phenomenon duplicated. In Massachusetts, within a few years of the marriage equality decision there, there was overwhelming public support for marriage equality. Uh, So facts on the ground, I think, will dictate the result there. All right, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an important decision from a Second Circuit panel reviving a discrimination case brought by a transgender man against Iron Workers Union.
All right, we're back discussing the case of Fawkes versus Ironworkers Local 40. Can you tell us why the Second Circuit revived this transgender man's discrimination suit against a union of welders? Okay, uh, Mr. Cole Fawkes, a transgender man, uh, member of Local 40 of the Ironworkers Union here in New York, complained that the hiring hall was discriminating against him. Uh, in, in certain industries, especially in the construction industry, a lot of the employment is through union-operated hiring hall, where uh, the hiring hall is contacted by an employer who needs to staff up for a job, and people are supposed to be referred based on seniority and qualifications. Uh, Mr. Fawkes complained that he wasn't getting the referrals he was entitled to because he's transgender, and he had specific instances of statements by uh, union business agents who are operating the hiring hall and who play a big role in the collective bargaining process, stating uh, to him, you know, if you were a girl, you'd do a lot better. If, if you acted like a girl, you'd do a lot better. The comments that made it clear that it was his gen transgender status that uh, was working against him here. Uh, he first went to the EEOC to complain. Uh, that was back during the Bush administration at a time when the EEOC was not favorably looking at transgender discrimination claims. Uh, so he was told they weren't going to take any action against the union based on his claim. Title VII applies to unions as well as employers. Uh, so they didn't take any action on that. Uh, they sent him a letter stating that they weren't going to pursue it. That's called a right to sue letter. Uh, it signifies that one has exhausted administrative remedies and can go into court. So he then filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York here in Manhattan. The problem was he sat around so long before he, issued, he filed his complaint that it was untimely, and the union was able to get it dismissed on grounds of untimeliness. But the problems continued, and now on top of everything else, one of the bargaining agents said to him, well, you're not going to get very far with, with these referrals if you sue the union. So he has a retaliation claim as well under Title VII, if he has a claim under Title VII at all. Uh, so he decided to file another lawsuit, since he had more evidence now that they were retaliating. Uh, so he went back into court in the Southern District, filed a new lawsuit, uh, and once again the union moved to dismiss, this time on grounds of failure to exhaust administrative remedies because he hadn't gone back to the EEOC and filed a new complaint. Uh, and uh, the federal district judge in the case took the position that uh, he hadn't exhausted his administrative remedies and therefore he was out of court. And they had dismissed the case again. Now, he was, he was representing himself, didn't have any legal advice. He didn't even mention a specific statute in his complaint. He just said, a violation of my federal civil rights. Uh, and uh, he also mentioned New York State and New York City laws as well. Uh, so the judge, the trial judge, construed that as a Title VII complaint. Title VII requires, uh, says that you're supposed to file with the administrative agency first, which is going to investigate and try to conciliate, try to work out a settlement, try to avoid court. That's a last resort. Uh, so they threw his case out again, and now he finally had counsel to appeal. And he appealed to the Second Circuit. And the, the court looked at this and said, first of all, the failure to exhaust administrative remedies is not a jurisdictional defect. One can raise equitable defenses. And in this case, the EEOC, at the time he filed 
his second complaint in 2011, the EEOC had not yet issued its decision in the Macy case holding the gender identity discrimination violates Title VII. So uh, the courts have allowed people to skip that step if it would be futile to file a complaint with the EEOC. And since the EEOC hadn't yet ad- accepted uh, gender identity discrimination claims under Title VII, it's possible it would have been futile. So that's a ground for reversing the trial judge and allowing him to go back and try to show that it would have been a waste of time to file with the EOC. But the court said his attorneys in his appellate brief raised a very interesting idea that there's another federal statute that might have been violated here. And this is one we haven't heard about very much in the area of gay rights law. That's the National Labor Relations Act. The National Labor Relations Act, the statute first adopted in 1935, uh, provides that when the employees in a workplace vote by majority vote to designate a union as their representative, that union becomes the exclusive representative of all the employees in the workplace. Whether they join or not, whether they voted for or against, the union represents all the employees in negotiating over their working conditions. Uh, And one of the working conditions in the construction industry is the operation of hiring hall. Uh, Well, the Supreme Court has interpreted the act as it was amended after 1947 uh, to apply to unions as well as employers. The original act just uh, listed unfair labor practices by employers that could be protested under the act. In 1947, they added unfair labor practices by unions, and one of them is discriminating against union members, uh, not providing fair and equal representation. Uh, The Supreme Court calls that the duty of fair representation. They say in exchange for the union having a monopoly on representing all the employees and being the exclusive agent, it has to represent them fairly without arbitrary distinctions. Uh, And this was originally, this concept was originally adopted in response to many unions which discriminated based on race. And the National Labor Relations Act doesn't mention race anywhere. Uh, But the Supreme Court interpreted it in a case called Vaca versus Sipes to apply to race discrimination claims. And it had previously uh, adopted a a, a similar principle under the Railway Labor Act, which applies to railroad unions, uh, because there was a lot of discrimination by the unions in the railroad industry. They even had separate locals for blacks and whites. And... Uh, the, the claim was that they negotiated inferior agreements for the black locals. Uh, so the Supreme Court adopted this duty of fair representation concept under the Railway Labor Act and then subsequently under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, so in this case, uh, the Court of Appeals, uh, a decision uh, for the Court of Appeals by Judge Susan Carney, she says, okay, it wasn't specified in his complaint. He was pro se, representing himself, not trained in law, didn't know that he should be mentioning the statute. But we agree with his attorneys that he has a potential claim here under the National Labor Relations Act. And the Supreme Court has has recognized two ways to enforce the duty of fair representation. One is to file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board, the administrative agency, claiming an unfair labor practice by the union. An alternative way is just to go to federal court and sue the union directly for a violation of the statute. And so the court said, we think that Mr. Fowkes 
may have a good duty of fair representation claim. Uh, so when the case goes back to the district court here, and it's to uh, Chief Judge Loretta Preska was the uh, trial judge in this case, and it goes back to Judge Preska, there are two alternative issues for her to address. One is whether he has a good equitable defense to the exhaustion of remedies issue under Title Seven, and the other is whether he may have a valid claim against the union for breach of the duty of fair representation. And because the court as much as said that they think he made out a good case for it, that means he does have a valid federal claim under at least one statute, which means the court can also assert jurisdiction over his state and local claims, including the New York City Human Rights Ordinance, which specifically bans gender identity discrimination. So uh, to the extent that Judge Preska might not be inclined to uh, entertain a gender identity discrimination complaint under Title VII because the EOC ruling is not binding on her, uh, she could uh, entertain a claim under the New York City Human Rights Law as a supplementary claim to the National Labor Relations Act claim. All, right. All inside baseball for labor and employment lawyers. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's another statute. Now, this is mainly of interest to the tiny percentage of the workforce that are represented in the private sector by unions. It's less than 10%. Well under 10 percent. But in the construction industry, in maritime employment, in uh, the railroads, and the Railway Labor Act also applies to the airlines. So there are are many areas where there are significant numbers of people represented by unions, and if the union discriminates against them, they have a cause of action under the National Labor Relations Act as well as Title VII to the extent that courts accept sexual orientation and gender identity claims under Title VII. All right. We will take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a fascinating New York ruling concerning whether a couple that had a commitment ceremony before marriage was legal were married for purposes of one man's estate. All right, we are back for our Of Note segment uh, for this podcast, uh, discussing the case of Matter of Mauricio Layton. Can you tell us the interesting argument a deceased gay man's mother and sister made to try to get around the wishes in his will? Okay, uh, so Mr. Layton died, left a will. Uh, the will appointed his ex-partner. Uh, they, they had had a commitment ceremony way back uh, 2001, something like that. They had had a commitment ceremony. They had subsequently split up. They weren't living together anymore, but they remained friends. And in fact, the former partner, I think, was the best man at the guy's uh, subsequent commitment with another person. Uh, but at any rate, he was named as the uh, as an executor and a primary beneficiary. And uh, when the man died, his mother and sister challenged uh, the will on the grounds that under New York law, when a married couple divorces, the former spouse is automatically disinherited. Uh, not only that they can't claim under the laws of intestate succession, which apply when there's no will, an ex-spouse uh, is also uh, under a, and this was an amendment to the New York Estates Law that uh, was enacted in 2008, uh, they're automatically disinherited. Bequests to them under a will are cut off. Their appointment as an executor cut off because the court assumes that uh, after a divorce, someone no longer has any real reason to want their former spouse to inherit from them or to uh, to be their executor. Now, uh, 
You might disagree with that and say that that isn't a necessary assumption. There are sometimes friendly divorces. And in this case, however, the, the mother and the sister claimed that the court should set it aside because they, at the commitment ceremony, it was conducted by a minister who said that although the state doesn't recognize it, in the eyes of the world you're married, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so they said, therefore, when they split up, it should be treated like a divorce and the former lover partner should be disinherited and we should get everything under the laws of intestate succession. Uh, and uh, the surrogate, uh, surrogate Nora Anderson in New York County said, hold on a minute. New York didn't pass its marriage equality law till 2011. This guy passed away long before then. You're asking me to apply the New York marriage equality law retroactively. Uh, their attorney said, no, we're not asking you to apply it retroactively. We're asking you to accept the idea that because same-sex couples are entitled to marry in New York uh, and also, you know, all these states, uh, all these federal courts and everything around the country, this was before Obergefell, uh, they have a constitutional right to marry of which they were deprived by New York at the time. You should treat them as if they were married and then treat their split up as if they were divorced. And the surrogate said, no, no, no. I think, she, I think she got a chuckle out of this case. I mean, it, this was chutzpah, yeah. that the mother and the sister were claiming to be defending gay rights here by moving to disinherit the ex-partner. Mm -hmm. Now, there have actually been some, I think, high court decisions from Massachusetts and Connecticut that have treated couples as being married before uh, marriage uh, started in those states for certain other purposes. Well, for I think there was loss of consortium claims yes. and, and medical malpractice and things like that. Uh, because uh, so for someone to bring a wrongful death claim, right. they have to have been married. Yep. Uh, and uh, so the were courts were... situation. It was It was retrospective. It was, it was doing something that was in accord with the idea that this couple was still a couple. Yeah, yeah. All right, interesting stuff. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and we will see you in September.